1: economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up.
0: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by
0: Acast. How are you doing there? It is the podcast time. You know the drill, the podcast. Well, listen, first of all, Happy New Year. Hope the Christmas was well. Hope all was good. The podcast we're going to try this year, as we've done last year, to make economics a little bit more comprehensible, a little bit more understandable, and hopefully a little bit more germane to everyone's life. And by the way, thank you all for your support on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you. And we hope to bring you, in the course of the next fifty odd weeks, my man, more podcasts, Johnny Boy. What's the lots crack?
2: Lots more podcasts. Lots more podcasts. How are you, Ed? I'm very good. Yeah. How are you settling good. in? I'm settling. I'm a bit, bit uh, more awake now after my my Christmas slumber. Yeah. So has the good. hoof? Are your are the, hooves as bad as mine? Have you got those bunion plasters I'm yet? I'm telling you
0: the bunion plasters. I, I, I showed it to you there on the side of my bloody thing. Used gone ads. gone
2: are, are all the Viagra ads.
0: Viagra's are gone. I've now bunion ads. Yeah. For our lads.
2: Anyway. Brexit Brexit. 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 Now listen to me. You said. Get
0: Brexit done. Get that's, what done. that's your man said.
2: What you said just when the deal was done. Yeah. You came out boldly and said game, set and match. Explain please. That was just
0: to annoy English people. Because That's what they <laughs> always say. Go exactly. That's us. what they always say about games <laughs> at match. No, what I wanted to say was that at the time there was this. Look, one thing's very, very clear is that you can never ever base your economic, political, social, commercial worldview on no change. Right? Yeah. So Brexit happened. It's an event that changes the world, right? But what happened in Ireland was the narrative, the story of Brexit was taken over largely by public servants, right? From the department of this, that, and the other, who said, oh my God, Brexit's a disaster. Brexit is just a thing. It's like anything that happens. It's a change, right? So you have to deal with it. And my idea was, yes, it was better for us four years ago before Brexit, but then it happens. And the question is, what was the worst case scenario after the British voted? And what was the best case scenario for Ireland, right? Yeah. We have migrated from a situation where we could have had a border in Ireland, hard border in Northern Ireland, yeah, which would have solidified Brexit for Ireland. It would have taken Northern Ireland out of the EU completely, mm, yeah, and it would have inflamed yet again ideas up there about sovereignty and nationalism or whatever, which we'll come back to. But yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: Britain could also have managed to get a deal whereby they could actually have undercut everybody in the EU. So the idea that the EU would have atrophied, the Brits would have been able to drive a coach and horses between France and Germany, and they could have got the deal, which meant they would cherry pick, which is what the Brexiters talked about all the time, this yeah. idea of the easiest trade deal. Yeah, yeah. And in the end, frankly, the Germans were at the other side of the table. They put their hand under the table, grabbed the Brits and squeezed. And that's what happened.
2: An Angela Merkel squeeze.
0: An Angela Merkel squeeze in your nether regions, you're not going yeah. to, just your voice is going up like that. <laughs> but what basically happened was trade deals are always about size. Size matters, John, right? Right. And the, the partner that comes to the table with the biggest economy, the most trade, etc., cetera, wins. That's just the way it is mm. because they're the ones that can walk away, right? That's the first thing. So one, the borders and the Irish Sea, good for us. Yeah. Yeah. Two, the fact that the Brits were basically brought to heel and said, you can leave, but here's the conditions. Yeah. Okay, good for us. So and the reason it's good for us is they can't undercut us in terms of regulation or whatever. Three, the fact that small countries like Ireland or any small country, and the interesting Britain's just a small country too. They don't know it. Yeah, they yeah, are yeah, just yeah. a small country. Yeah, right? yeah. Basically, you can never get rich trading with yourself because your market's too small. So when your market is like 5 million people, 6 million people, you always have to project beyond your borders because you're always constantly undermined by the tyranny of size. So if you want to get wealthy, you have to be a trading nation that trades openly. Yeah. Now, think about what's happened in Brexit. The Brexiteers have undermined the stability of the UK and that will undermine investment decisions taken for people who want to use and had used the UK as a bridgehead into Europe. The only English-speaking bridgehead into Europe now is us. Yeah. They're, so they're, Because an American investor will say, you know, who knows what's going to happen to the Brits, right? Yeah. They've already, you know, a free trade deal is not the same as a single market. A free trade deal is the most basic economic deal you can have, which is what they've got. A single market is all about... Recognising standards, regulations, qualifications. What the Brits don't seem to understand is they can't now live in Europe anymore.
2: I know. I know. Yeah, right? it's they funny. They can't that... travel.
0: You know, it's it's crazy. And, so and
2: it's all about visas now. And and uh...
0: the mental thing Brexit was all about stopping Europeans coming into Britain. It's ended up stopping Brits going into Europe. <laughs> yeah. Right. So if you're an investment, actually you're a Canadian company are an American company and you say, OK, I want some of that 450 million population market called the European Union. Mm. Do I want to invest in Portugal Spain? No, I don't speak the language. I don't understand the culture, yada, yada. Do I want to go to the UK, which I was going to go to, mm. but now they've gone off on one. You say, ah, oh, I had this Irish place. There's a cluster already of American companies here. Why don't yeah. we go there? Right? So well,
2: what about, just to stop you there, though, we've always talked about the language thing as being a big barrier. But
0: in fairness, you know, they all speak English. No, it's not about speaking English. It's about what I would call, whether rightly or wrongly, an Anglo-American culture. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. No, I a, get that. A way of conceiving. You go to you go to a bookshelf in an Irish house. You go to the recognizable names. The culture is very recognizable. You're absolutely right. But the thing is, Ireland so small. All we need is a few crumbs off the table. Yeah. And we're going to be fine. We don't need to get every piece of investment, right? So what the Brits have done is they've made... Our, if you're in the head of a chief executive and you're having a 50-50 investment decision, Britain has made it harder to invest in Britain.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Right? So we are going to get a disproportionate bit of that upside. And all we need is a tiny bit of that upside because we're a population, even including the North, which we'll talk about, of what, 6.5 million? The UK is 60 million. So we're tiny, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So they're very important. The other thing that's important is what the Brits also wanted was also to undermine the EU, right? They were hoping that they would go first. and In the, in the mind of some of the more extreme Brexiteers, they would lead the charge for the destruction of the EU, which would have led to massive economic and financial uh, convulsions in the European Union. Who would have benefited? The City of London. Which they always do. The city of yeah. London always benefits when shit hits the fan, yeah. because capital flows go all over the place, and people like Rees Mogg's, Hoover yeah. it up. Now, the Brits don't even have a deal on services. So think about it. the Brits now have a f- deal on manufacturing. Yeah, there's no deal on services yet. Where do so we... what's,
2: what what does that mean then? So, Where, does,
0: what... so so we don't know. The City of London, take for example, could it, could it just could all
2: the, the the banks take flight then?
0: Of course they could. The the biggest no brainer for the City of London has always been managing the pension funds of Europe, right? So let's say the German pension funds or the French pension funds, right? Mm. Basically, the French people pay into a pension fund. Let's say there's a billion euros in one fund, right? Normally, that stuff is managed in England, in London. Yeah, It's called the passport, right? So you can passport financial services into every area. There's no deal on that yet. What happens if the European Union says, do you know what? You're not going to get a deal on this. Mm. All those... Pension funds will either go back to France or Germany or they'll go to somewhere else in the European Union, which has got banking infrastructure and financial right? Again, this is an upside. What kind of deal
2: do they need though? What, like well, when look, you talk about a deal, what is that deal? The
0: problem for the Brits was the following. It was very simple for the European Union to give them a trade deal. Why? Because the European Union has a massive surplus in trade. Yeah. Okay. So the Europeans sell much more to the Brits in terms of cars and hard stuff, Right. So they kind of needed a deal. Mm. In services, the European Union has a massive trade deficit, right. right? So if you have a massive trade deficit, you want to try and get some of that business back into your own country. Right. So why would you have a deal? So you can string them out. Right. So all these Was this are,
2: deliberately kicked down the road then? Of
0: course. And the Brits are, you know, it's, you know, like basically the Brits are too stupid to understand they've lost and the Europeans are too clever to tell them. Right? Right. This is what Seamus Mallon said about the Good Friday Agreement which we'll go to now. Go on, tell us. He said, at the end of the Good Friday Agreement, he said, the unionists are too dumb to realise they've won and the Catholics are too clever to explain it to them. <laughs> it's a lovely thing, right? But one of the big changes in this country, one of the big changes for Brexit, there was a potential for a disastrous Brexit that would have impacted on us really, really badly on us, right? Yeah. The... Minimum trade deal is great for us because agriculture, which is what we export to the Brits, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tariff-free. So we got that, right? So no tariff, right? And yet the services industry, it's still up to play for. But more interestingly, I want to talk to you about it, is that what's going to happen in Northern Ireland? You know, because the UK have thrown those constitutional cards in the air. So let's go and talk about the North, because yes. that is the big change. And Let's go and talk to Andrea Catherwood. I think one of the best journalists this country has produced, this island has produced for the last 25 years. ITN, foreign correspondent, BBC correspondent. Now she presents Women's Hour on BBC Radio 4. Brilliant. A great head from Belfast. Let's talk to her. Andrea, how are you, darling? You well?
1: I'm, I'm very well, thank you, David. I'm very well indeed.
0: Let's talk about Brexit. What mm. is your take? I mean, the last time we spoke... On Brexit, we were talking about this constitutional issue, right? Uh, Scotland, Northern Ireland. Let's let's focus on that one again, because it is interesting watching the first BBC reports during the week about, you know, January the 1st, January the 2nd, January the 3rd, and these, you know, customs checks in Belfast, that in actual Mm -hmm. fact, it is now a reality that the border is down the IRC. What's your whole take on this?
1: Well, you know, I think Brandon Lewis, you know, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, he embarrassed himself rather on Twitter because he actually tweeted, there is no Irish sea border. And the Irish sea border was was in little quotation marks. And he actually tweeted that while, like, the BBC News was reporting on the six o'clock news, the border checks actually physically happening behind the reporter, you know, in Belfast and in Larne. And it's, you know, it's really happening. I think at the moment... All sides. Brandon Lewis does a fantastic job in, in managing to get all sides in Northern Ireland sort of on side, you know, because they all disagree with him, which is quite a quite a rare feat, really, in Northern Ireland politics. But I think people in Northern Ireland across the spectrum are really quite fed up by the idea that they were, whichever side you were on originally, this, at the moment, doesn't seem like good news. So if you voted to remain, as obviously we know the majority of people in Northern Ireland did, you're in a situation now where you've got those border checks that you didn't want. You've left the EU, which is not what you wanted. And yes, you're still in the uh, you know in the single market for goods, but you're still out of the EU. It's not what you wanted. It's not what you signed up for. And of course, if you're the DUP, then you're ripping because you've been betrayed. And, you know, their whole thing, the whole reason that they ever wanted Brexit was so that there would be if they're, you know, they they would have this kind of sovereignty, this unalloyed sovereignty, this and and perhaps a harder border um, on the island of Ireland, which would have suited some people within the, the loyalist community, despite what they maybe said publicly. Certainly a lot of them privately thought that was quite a good thing. And obviously they haven't got what they wanted either. So nobody in Northern Ireland seems very happy at the moment and therefore to have the government at Westminster telling you that actually your eyes are deceiving you and there is no border, I think just compounds the idea that, you know, you've been sold a cup basically. So, you know, I think that if there is a silver lining to this for Northern Ireland, then, you know, and I think possibly there is, I think that that hasn't really been made very clear yet. I think, you know, there's at least so much that people can absorb and they're taking this in bite-sized chunks so if you're a northern irish business right now you're looking at what's going to happen today and tomorrow and after the grace period finishes in three months or in six months and whether or not you're going to lose that client in you know in Aberystwyth that you've been trading with or whatever you know and what you do next so the idea of a kind of a, a bigger picture where perhaps there'll be some kind of you know direct investment into the north because they're in this kind of privileged position. While that all might be might be possible, it, it sort of doesn't feel that way when actually you're looking at the 10 or 12 different new checks that you might have at the border.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it seems on a practical level, there needs to be in the North a total mindset mm. shift to say, who are we? How are we going to make a crust? How do we position ourselves? Can I ask you first about what's going on constitutionally in England, in Scotland now? How do you think things will play out now <laughs> between the Scottish nationalists and the Tory English nationalists over the next, you know, short while? I'm talking a year or two. It's n- nothing immediate.
1: Yeah, well, look, I mean, you've got this amazing thing where Nicola Sturgeon is in a poll position. You know, she said, Scotland will be back soon. Keep the lights on to the EU. Now, that's you know, That's what she said when they left. You've got this thing coming up, May the 6th, Scottish elections. That is then going to end up being a kind of a, a proxy for a referendum. And it looks like the SNP are going to sweep the board at Hollywood, right? And it, it's amazing, actually, because the, uh, the leader of the Conservative Party in Scotland has actually already said that basically there's nothing he can do, you know, he's, uh, which is extraordinarily six months ahead of, of an election. So there's no way in the world that Boris Johnson is going to grant another referendum right now, and he won't grant it probably no matter what happens on May the 6th, because I think that we can assume at the moment that they're going to have a huge majority. The SNP will have a huge majority. So then the question comes, and this is where there is an interesting kind of split within the SNP as to what they do next. Do they have a plan B? And there there is quite uh, split. If you know the SNP well, there are quite a few members of the SNP who think that they would like to see Nicola Sturgeon becoming more radical and actually saying, "What do you? What do? What do they do? Do they do a kind of a, a Catalonia thing where they have a, a a referendum? You know that they just set up all on their own? I mean, it didn't work very well over there. Is that the route to go down?" You know, there's a lot of different views on this, but I think there is frustration amongst the SNP, amongst certain members of the SNP, and quite senior ones as well, that if they just say, "Okay, Boris Johnson, please can we have a referendum," they know that he's going to say no, and then what do they do? So that's a big question: what happens next?
0: But wouldn't this be, wouldn't this be in in the historical context for the SNP, quite a nice grievance to take? Over the next couple of years, which is basically we want to go independent, and those people in England, the very people we want to be independent from,
1: won't allow us. So that yeah, you, but can, you see, c- you, you, you you do want. To, I mean, if you're the SNP, if that's what you would like, you would like to have a referendum while Boris Johnson is still in power.
0: Absolutely, because he's your number one. Car. Rather
1: than wait, because for example, if if you know Keir Starmer were to win the next election, so you've got a Labour government, you know, I'm not saying that that would solve. Many of you know Scotland's issues, and the SNP would probably say, you know, if they were here, they would say, no, you know, that wouldn't make any difference. But of course, the you know, yeah, you want a Tory, Jacob you want the Tory Boris Toph. Johnson. These are these. This is a winning card. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, nothing would so inflame uh, people in Scotland than the likes of Rees moggs or. Are you, that
1: kind of, the so you goal, want a the, referendum before twenty before twenty twenty four. So you don't actually have an awful lot of time to to mess around with all, you know, just saying to Boris Johnson, okay, you know, we're really cross with you. And you know, maybe you might see a little uptick in, you know, the polls. They've already got them. there's you know, all the polls are saying there'd be a there'd be a majority if there was a referendum tomorrow. So I know that there are quite a few SNP members who are thinking, well, what are we waiting for? You know, now is the time to strike while we still look at the EU and think we'd like to be back in there, you know, before too much time has passed and, you know, people start just maybe getting used to the status quo.
0: No, absolutely. And of course, if they were to do a Catalonia and the Johnson government were to imprison Nicola Sturgeon, now that is quite possible. I mean, it (laughs) sounds crazy, but it's possible.
1: Yeah, well, look, look at all the things that have happened over the past few years and the proroguing of Parliament and everything else. So um, I think we've had to change our views of what sounds ridiculous and what doesn't. And
0: tell me, André, so if you're sitting then in Belfast and you're mm-hmm. a member of either the DUP or the Ulster Union, so assume that Sinn Féin just want this all to play out. Sinn Féin, have got they don't have to do anything except wait around and mm. see how the yeah, whole yeah. thing pans out. And you're looking at Scotland, you're looking at Westminster, What do you do? I mean, is there any? I mean, I know Northern Ireland is having their centenary this year. Is there any campaign in the North to make the union attractive to people? Because there's no point saying never, never, never and betrayal and no surrender. But is there any sort of sense in the unionists that they're actually going to say, well, do you know what? We will actually try and make the case for the union.
1: Well, I find this absolutely fascinating, David. What is the case for the union? Because, you know, But intrinsically in the the, the heart of Northern Ireland, in in its very creation, was the idea that it didn't have to explain itself because there was a built-in majority. You know, the whole reason that we ended up with six counties as opposed to, for example, nine counties and taking in the whole of Ulster was to make sure that 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 majority of Protestants was enshrined, that 70% plus majority was enshrined. And as you know, that's no longer the case. But it's absolutely intrinsic, and you know the Unionists never thought they had to explain why it was a good thing to be part of the Union. In the same way that you don't have to explain why the sun rises, it's just what happens. It's just what we want. To, you know, it's it's right in the very heart of the DNA of being an Ulster Protestant Unionist that you were loyal to the Crown, no matter how many times it betrayed you. And and now, and so now, I think this is a huge question. I think this is the biggest question for Northern Ireland going forward. Unionists are going to have to do something that they have never done in their history. They are going to have to try to attract people who are not necessarily loyal to them. So they don't just bang the drum and get the grassroots riled up again by talking about betrayal. By talking about you know Jim Alister, sort of an independence. He's a, a member. He's an I know he's well. Talking. I
0: have. I have. Yeah. I have been on. There's a Northern Current Affairs show called Let's Talk, which I think should be called uh-huh. Let's Shout, because you're actually <laughs> sitting it. And particularly if you're a Southerner in, in between the two, they're just roaring at each other. And uh, Jim Allister <laughs> yes, was so sitting just- beside me, and he was making the point. Some fellas in the thing. And The guy was just riling, he was saying, do you think that there should be a public holiday in Northern Ireland for the anniversary of the 1916 Rising because there's a public holiday for the Queen's Jubilee, right? Right. And Alistair went off on on a mental one and he started talking about... We will not, we will not under any circumstances celebrate a grubby battle that was carried out in a foreign land, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I just said to him, look, like, you already oh do. It's called the Battle of boy, the Bowling.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: But so, so, so those guys, so those guys are okay. saying, like, they have to but, you know, so, get their so head around those something Those guys,
1: else. they've got, well, you know, He's actually said that he quite fancied the idea of a hard Brexit. You know, a couple of cameras around the border would have been better than a border in the Irish Sea. You know, he's talked about the dire consequences, as as many loyalists have, of of what's happened now with this, with with Northern Ireland's special status, if you like. And there is a feeling amongst those loyalists that the ambition of this protocol is to kind of build an all-Ireland economy. Yes, and no, I've heard fear, Obviously, yeah. right? That's the fear. That might well be, that might well, and, that might well be our fear DUD too. To, well,
0: you know, because we need to, we need need to think about you. this. Yeah, yeah.
1: We need to think yeah about absolutely. This. But you know, so but the whole idea is that they're calling for the DUP and 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 other loyalist voices to thwart this idea, right? Which really means thwarting Northern Ireland's economy. Now, if you think that through, is that going to? make the people in the middle ground the kind of north down unionists let's call them who voted to remain yep by and large right but they're protestant largely and they'd quite like to probably remain within the union but they also would have liked to be in the eu and you know they could be they could be persuaded either way so is wrecking northern ireland's economy in order to thwart this fear of an all-ireland economy is that going to please them no and what about younger people who don't really see themselves as either Catholic or Protestant or indeed aren't Catholic or Protestant because, God forbid, they're migrants and they came from somewhere else? You know, again, Northern Ireland's not very, you know, hasn't been very thoughtful about all of these new, or the, the kind of the new people who are living in Northern Ireland, either because they come from a different background because they didn't grow up in the traditional Catholic and Protestant ways that, you know, that, that we're kind of inclined to think of when we look at the sectarian headcounts. I just can't see at the moment anybody from from the unionist persuasion trying to win over these people. And the funny thing is, if they don't, if they can't, they would lose a poll. They'd lose a border poll because you're not just going to manage to. You know, we we look. We'll see. There's a there's a a census coming up uh, this year, and you know we'll see what the the figures are. But we know the direction of travel. Northern Ireland so over that hundred years I mean it, it's, it's it's quite neat isn't it historically that 100 years on those six counties which were created to enshrine a Protestant majority are actually going to end up not having one at its centenary you know and um, which kind of shouldn't matter at this stage but it will matter if the unionists refuse to broaden their appeal in any way and at the moment I just can't see them doing it. I mean Peter Robinson you know if he even vaguely mentions the idea that they could just take their heads out of the sand for just one second, he gets shot down. You know, so there don't there doesn't seem to be a kind of a middle ground that's really that's able to communicate a, a view of unionism well enough to make those people who might think about things like the NHS and you know the good parts of, of Britain, because you know there are quite a lot of good parts to. To the United Kingdom, you know, it's not all bad. I mean, it's we've seen the very worst of the United Kingdom, right? Over Brexit. You know, we've seen this, you know, ludicrous kind of superior attitude and you know, this kind of buccaneering spirit, which just this kind of colonial superiority, which has really shown the worst. And that's that's really not what the most what most people in the UK are like. And it's actually, you know, that's a little tiny narrow sliver of British values, but Britain's also got a lot of different values of, of, you know, being tolerant of supporting human rights. You know, there's a huge desire here to tackle climate change. You know, there's a lot more going on than the kind of caricature of it. I mean, the
0: the problem is that you have this, you know, what's referred to as the chumocracy. You know, the chums Mm. from Oxford Mm. and the chums from the posh schools are now running the place and they tend Mm -hmm. to still have an imperial worldview. There's no doubt of that. And as you said, the average English person, the average British person can't stand them in many cases and Mm. and, and is not like that. But can we just end on on this idea of whether or not, because I I think this is the key issue. Does a unionist leader emerge, not unlike a sort of an FW de Klerk in South Mm. Africa, who says, okay, lads, here's the way it's going. I'm looking at 20 years, I can only see it going one way. We now have to re engage, not even re engage, we've never engaged before. We've now to conceive where do we go? Do you see that? Can you see that person emerging? Can you see the groundswell in the north of people saying, hold on a second, it's not good enough just to say no. It's not good enough just to say never. It's not good enough. We actually have to create something constructive, not for us, but for our kids and their kids and mm-hmm. some sort of exit strategy for them.
1: I think. David, the issue is, and if you look at South Africa, it's a different. But there wasn't a middle ground in the same way. So, if you are that person of Protestant heritage that has those feelings, there's an Alliance Party there for you to join. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You and they're doing very well, to, and they're doing very well. And they will do. I mean, Naomi Long is actually a very impressive individual, and you know, you will see. More and more people can actually go. There is a there is a centre ground already there, but it's not a, it's, it's it's not an exclusively unionist area. So perhaps there isn't the desire within unionism to to make itself more appealing because the fear is, and this does go back, and it's extraordinary that I'm still using these terms that come from 100 years ago, but there is still this built in idea of not an inch. And if we give an inch here, then where do we end up? We end up in this all-Ireland economy. This is only going one way. Northern Ireland is never going to become more intrinsically aligned with the United Kingdom. You know, they're not going to actually up sticks and you know dump themselves in the River Thames outside Westminster. So it was only ever going to go one way. You know, they were only ever going to become slightly less aligned. Now we've seen that big time with the exit from Europe. You know, interesting things like Erasmus, the e-hit card. You know, is this a question of how, is this is this the end game? Is it by, you know, a thousand cuts? Is it rather than just a border capote?
0: The Republic kind of uses all these soft power ideas, like we'll pay for your Erasmus, we'll do this exactly. thing. Yeah, I mean, that could be that could be the way. So rather than just the big moment, it's just a gradual well, process to be a big of blending together.
1: Mm. But by the time the big moment comes, maybe it's not such a terrifying big moment. You know, I mean, I, I, but I just, I can't. The reason I can't see that one person arriving out of the, you know, the the, the kind of the East Belfast ether uh, on a white horse, you know, and saying, "Hold on, lads, we've got to change the way we are, otherwise we're going to lose Northern Ireland." Is because I just don't know that they would be welcome at a grassroots level, and therefore, how do they become the leader? A leader, you know, there is a big me- there's a mechanism in the DUP, and I don't think that it's I don't think there's there's enough power there that I don't can't see anybody coming in and saying, you know, look, Ian Paisley, thanks very much. But you know, your time has passed. I'm taking over now. I don't think Sammy Wilson's gonna roll over and say, okay, let's do it your way.
0: I think we will leave it on the Sammy Wilson comment, which is Do you remember Sammy Wilson getting pictured nude in a field?
1: (laughs) I do. (laughs) I do. What was all that about? And uh, now he won't even wear a mask. The man <laughs> has got a propensity to take off anything that he's wearing.
0: <laughs> we will leave it there, Andrea. That was fantastic. David, lovely
1: to talk to you. Great to talk great. to you, really good. Cheers. Andrea. Really take Bye. care. Take Bye. care. Bye. 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 Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: Yes, so where is the Northern, the clerk? I, I don't know. I mean... It's interesting what she was saying there about what Andrew was saying there about the argument for the union at this weak. stage. It's very it's weak. It's incredibly weak.
0: But it's all more interesting what she was saying is that unionists never felt they had to make it. yeah, yeah. And yeah. now they have to make it. And the interesting thing is there will come a time not so far away where the union will only be maintained by unionists convincing nationalists that the union's in their interest.
2: And the and likelihood that,
0: <laughs> of yeah. that is... So therefore, what we've got to do is figure that's the big change that Brexit has wrought for Ireland, mm. okay? And we have to figure out how do we face that challenge? How do we use the opportunity of Brexit as presented? Not just Brexit, but also COVID as presented. Yeah, yeah. To make this country stronger economically. Because when you're strong economically, you can be generous to others, Right. And we have to be generous to unionism. I know it sounds an anathema for people. People say, well, why would you do that? They've always been. Because basically they're the weakened party. And it's like in any deal, the weakened party needs to be brought in. You kind of almost need to put your arm around them and say it's going to be okay.
2: I know, but but also what Andrew was saying there, though, was that it's this mentality that's ingrained of give an inch. They don't, if you give an inch, you know, they'll take a mile. But I mean, yeah. in, in reality, though, you know, when you look at the Good Friday Agreement and you look at everything that has happened over the last while, including the Brexit and the, and the new border, they've been given an inch all the while. So they've been shafted all the time. Yeah, I mean, and it's the, just chipping, chipping away.
0: But to stay with the South African idea, do you remember what Mandela did when he got out of prison? Mandela did something amazing. Mandela didn't go to his own people. Mandela, the first thing he did was he went to the Afrikaners. And he said, you have a place in the new South Africa. Mm. So he didn't say, I'm going to be a black leader alone. He said, I'm going to be a leader and we're going to create a rainbow nation, right? And I'm going to go. And I remember he put on the Springbok rugby jersey. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, The Springboks
0: were the most racist, anti-apartheid, horrible white supremacists toward the black people. He put on the jersey and he said, I'm your man. And we need to be as generous to them. So we need to go in amongst them and say, we understand you. I mean, it could be difficult to put on a ranger's jersey now, in fairness. <laughs> but you might have to do <laughs> it. Lin- Lin- Linfield. 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 Linfield is the one, yeah. Trebley. <laughs> okay. But do you see what I mean? So we have to be generous to them in order for them to feel secure to come in yeah. to us. Because the way in which Britain is going, the English will abandon them very quickly. Yeah. And the Scots will go off on their own.
2: Who is it that your man said, Storm and Norman, after the first Iraq war? Be magnanimous in your victory.
0: Yeah, or magnanimous even.
2: That's what I said. Do you know how to <laughs> Magnanimous.
0: Because okay? I always say this. I always say the same thing, magnanimous. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but that's the, the idea. So then what do we do now? So it strikes me that, again, I come back to this idea. 40 years ago, Ireland did not have a pharmaceutical industry, mm. nor a medical device industry, nor a software industry. We now have the biggest pharma industry in the world per head of population, the biggest medical devices, and the biggest tech. So we had no right to play in that game. But we did because we attracted companies in and said, look, here's a labor force. Here's a tax break. Here's access to the EU. You create what you can do, right? And we created these quite significant industries which have boosted incomes dramatically, right, in the country. Mm. We could do the same with manufacturing. So what's going to happen, I think, after COVID, the idea that large companies are going to have supply chains deep, deep, deep in China, yeah, that's gone. Wuhan has destroyed that. Yeah. Last year, the thing that I saw that I think will change geopolitical strategy was the fact that America, Britain, Germany, France, all these huge nations, Canada, were queuing up in Beijing Asking for PPE equipment. We yeah. couldn't make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you imagine, that will never happen again. If you're sitting in number 10 Downing Street or, or, or in the Reichstag, you're talking to your, you're saying, never again are we going to become dependent on those people. Yeah. Ever. Yeah, yeah. And what that will percolate down into all corporations, which means, so since the fall of the Berlin Wall, economics, our commercial strategy in manufacturing, has been extend your supply chain to the cheapest place. doesn't matter really who they are. As long as the stuff is cheap, yeah. right? And then you had spreadsheet analysis in supply chain management that say, okay, we've got a new supplier. Where is he? Oh, he's place called Wuhan, out there, somewhere in China. But don't worry, the stuff is gonna come, okay? That's all gone now. Because COVID will create this imperative in multinational corporations, in international business, to do business with people you know. Who, yeah who are back to trust. Who are you? Yeah. Do I know you? So relationship economics. Is going to take the place, I think, of price-based economics. And that means that large supply chains will truncate and you will source manufacturing where you trust the people and the state, et cetera. And who do you trust? It's like in business, you will always go back to do business with the person you did business mm. with and you made money from. That's always the way, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So think about that. So large corporations are going to go to those nodes of the globe where clusters of their own types exist already. They're going to go to countries and regions where they say, okay, I'm talking to my mate. He said or she said that's a good place to do business, like a recommendation. They'll come. Mm. So I come back again. This island is in a phenomenal position to import manufacturing business and industries. Small countries can never, we can't invent this stuff on our own. Mm. You acquire industry. This idea that you invented you're some great it, innovator. It's all nonsense. Yeah, you yeah. acquire somebody else's. So like in all business, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. I'll give you something you don't have. Access to the EU, low taxation, security, yada, yada. And I think it's not inconceivable that Ireland could build significant manufacturing capacity. What,
2: what kind of manufacturing are you talking about? Anything,
0: anything. Anything. that is Anything that is industrial, that is built. Because in the old days, you know, you had a steelworks. Steelworks had to be beside a coal industry to burn the coal, yeah, right? Yeah. So, you, so basically, industry was located and was dictated to by geography, and not even geography—it was like dictated to by geology. Yeah, it was like an accident. Yeah, yeah, of an course a, it was. A planetary yeah. accident yeah. that you sat in a coal stream or something like that. That's all over now, right? Manufacturing can be anywhere, anywhere. So the question then is: Do you want it? And of course you do. Like When I see those Nissan workers in Sunderland, right, and I think of the Harland and Wolf workers in East Belfast, right? Mm. If the British didn't get a deal on trade, and if they continued to play silly buggers with this, why wouldn't Nissan just go to Belfast? Set up the factory and you're done. It's a one-off capital investment. Yeah. You depreciate that over 40 years. It costs you zero with the cost of capital zero. Straight away, you're in.
2: This also goes back to what you were saying before about infrastructure. We need quite a significant investment to be more attractive. We've got a lot going for us, but we need more. But
0: John, just think of already, this country is by far and away the most dynamic exporter and importer in the world. Exports and imports are over 100% of GDP here. Right. Right. But high-end manufacturing jobs, is there high-skilled, high productivity and high waged. They're not low wage anymore. What about
2: the argument, though, that the Irish economy is becoming too dependent on international capital and international companies? And do, do we not need to build our own
0: more indigenous companies? Well, I mean, that's a quasi-Marxist view, I've always thought, right? Oh? No, really, you know. And what's wrong with that? Well, that's true, because <laughs> your brother was teaching us Marx when we were kids, okay? Das Kapital and all that sort of stuff. But this idea that we are citizens of somewhere when in actual fact we're citizens of anywhere that rightly or wrongly we've been brought up in a post-nationalist world mm. okay we live in a post-nationalist world that you know we're comfortable all, all, all over the place but
2: Actually, that's reversing now
0: but but, but what'm I'm, I'm, what I'm talking about is all this is about trying to stop that here yeah to try and create a situation where the flag is less important so if the north becomes an issue that we're trying to reduce the significance of the flag and elevate the significance of livelihood, lifestyle, etc. Yeah. When I I see what's potentially possible here, John, it should not matter to us whether or not the shareholders of the company happen to be Irish. It would be great if they were for them, but not necessarily for the workers, right? Right. So the idea then is that there's going to be this, there's this footloose capital which is a gun for hire and will retreat back to the United States straight away, that's not the way the world works anymore. Mm. Yes, certain countries like Denmark have really, really impressive small businesses themselves. Countries like Ireland were so far behind, we were so backward, that we had to make a two or three generation leap to catch up with them. And you can't do that on your own. So we acquired the capital and we acquired the innovation and we acquired the brands and the business and our people have done well out of that. My sense is that the yearning for some sort of cottage industry that grows into a bigger industry, that grows into a bigger industry, and that's in some way more sustainable, I'm not sure that that actually holds. Because I think that when large companies put roots down in a country, mm. they don't do it for two or three years. They do it for 50 years. Yeah, And that decision is taken. And once you get a small percentage of those in your country, if you're a small country, you can completely reverse generations of underperformance. And we've already done it. Yeah. And it's just, let's do a little bit more of it. How are you doing there? This new year is kind of special because you're going to be locked down. You're going to be stuck at home thinking, what am I going to do? Why don't you give yourself, or the person you love, the gift of knowledge? And join me and we can learn economics together in this lockdown. You'll do an economics course together. We'll do tutorials, we'll do Ask Mac. You can drop in questions, I'll answer them. And even better, just because this lockdown is going to be such a pain, we're going to give you a 15% discount for this subscription, the annual subscription. So if you want to learn economics in the lockdown, why don't you subscribe? Patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. And let's learn economics together.